So if we took a look in John chapter 4, and I, I don't think I'll read this whole chapter because uh, take it for granted that we know quite a bit about John 4 and the woman at the well. But maybe read the first few verses uh, from about verse uh, 4 down to maybe verse 11. And he must pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, or about lunchtime, 12 o'clock. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink. You would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with. And the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? And then our Lord Jesus took and he spoke to her about the living water. And then he created a desire in her heart for the water in verse 15, she says, Give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And once she had, and I think this is an important thing to consider this morning, he did not bring her sin before her until she had a desire for the living water. And I think that is a lesson to us as to bringing sin before the people, and maybe that's about all we'll read of that, of that passage. But I think John chapter four is the greatest example in our Bible of an Jesus bringing the gospel to an unseeking soul. In John chapter three, Nicodemus was a seeking soul. In John chapter four, this woman appears that she was not a seeking soul, and life had not been kind to her. She had five husbands, whatever the circumstances were, I don't know. I do think she must have been some looker because uh, she had five husbands and then the one she had now was not her husband. And uh, she was coming down at lunchtime at noon. And I understand from history, they, women would have come to draw water in the cool of the day in the evening time. And so some have suggested that she came to draw water at lunchtime so she could avoid probably the other women that came to the well because the likelihood is she was very unpopular. And so Jesus must needs go through Samaria and he has this woman in mind and she turned out to be such a great blessing. But he must needs go through Samaria. So we could ask how valuable or how important are souls? Well, Jesus must go through Samaria. And I think today, if we went around to each one of us and asked how we came to know the Lord, almost everybody would say, unless they're raised in a Christian environment and grew up in a Christian home, but most people that were saved, if I could use the term from the outside, and I don't even like that term, but anyway, from the outside, most of them will say, well, somebody talked to them or somebody brought the gospel to them. It was an individual that brought the gospel to them. And so it's personal contact. And um, I know personal contact does not set aside preaching the gospel to a group of people. It doesn't set that aside at all. However, most people respond to a one-on-one person speaking to them one and one and the Lord Jesus when he arrives at that well he was hungry and he was thirsty and he was weary how many times have you and I um, prayed and said Lord I would be available to you today and I would like you 
just to remember I'm a tool and I would like you to use me. And then when the opportunity comes up, well, I'm busy at this or I'm busy at that and I'm just too busy. I haven't got time to stop and talk. It's circumstances are just not right. A dear fellow we saw saved a number of years ago, John Brunsveld, he has a small dairy farm in southern Ontario. And John began to pray, Lord, bring somebody in contact with me that I can talk to them because I'm on the farm here. I can't go out to the people in the community, but if you bring them here, I'll talk to them. You know what he said? My, the people came by at the most inopportune moments. He said, I'd be in the middle of milking and they would come by, but I would remember that I'd pray to the Lord and he said, I have made a purpose of heart to go and shut the machine off. If you go to the little assembly, not a little assembly now where John Brunswell is, when we first went and started working there was Clyde, Ontario. John and Mary were the first couple to get saved. The assembly had been there for more than 100 years. It was down to seven or eight old believers. And the Lord started to work, and John and Mary were amongst the first. And if you go there today, there'll be eight, nine, ten people sitting in that little gathering at John Brunsveld, a dairy farmer with 50 cows to milk and working on a farm three or four miles from where the assembly meets. John has seen a number of people saved. He shuts off his milking machine. He said, I made up my mind. It doesn't matter what I'm doing. The work of God is the most important. And the Lord Jesus, weary, hungry, thirsty. He had every reason, what we could say, not to talk to this individual. But nothing was going to hinder him. And I suggest that the Lord Jesus will bring people across our path. And many times, maybe he's testing us. They are going to come when it's totally, completely inconvenient. You're having supper. And I think I was talking to Malcolm about that earlier. That's when you're... Uh, what do you call those, those uh, telemarketers phone? And somebody said that they're a great, I never even thought of it before, but they are great people to talk to about the Lord and the gospel and talk to them because they've phoned and you can talk to them. So there is that, but you're eating supper. Do you want to interrupt my supper to talk to somebody about the Lord? And so here, here is uh, the Lord Jesus, weary, hungry, and thirsty, and he's going to speak to this Woman, And we are commanded to go into the, all the world. But what hinders us? Could I say that sometimes it's a lack of concern? And uh, how is that going to be changed? Well, I suggest it's asking God to give me a love for souls. I think also by reading the Gospels, you get to know our Lord Jesus Christ. And the more I get to know him, the more I will long that others will come to know him as well. There's an attitude, too, in North America where everybody does their own thing. And so there's the homosexuals and you don't criticize them and there's everybody else and you don't criticize them. And so how can you bring the gospel to people because everybody has their own thinking? Well, we need to remember that uh, it's not too personal. Like I went into a house one time and they were talking in the most vulgar, telling dirty stories and jokes. And finally, I said to one fellow about the Lord and the gospel, and I think I asked him if he was saved, and I don't usually use that terminology. And he says, my, you're getting pretty personal. And I said, well, I thought around in this room here, you didn't mind being personal. And as I listened to some of the stuff you're talking about, so, so you know, um, there, we can also have no concern or think it's too personal, but fear is a big thing. And how do we overcome fear? Well, I suggest the way we overcome being afraid of talking to people is by talking to people. Our son-in-law, Jim Bergsman, he was with us actually a year and a half ago, and Jim was saved a number of years ago when he was 26 years old. Before we met him, and then we met him, he got saved, and then he, he uh, married our daughter. But... Um, Jim wanted to talk to people, but he was afraid. He said, boy, I, my mouth get dry, and how do I communicate? So he said, I drive around town, around out the edge of town, look for hitchhikers, and pick up the first hitchhiker he saw. And I'm not saying for everybody to pick up hitchhikers. <laughs> However, he picked up hitchhikers. Then he said he'd ask where the guy was going, and if the guy was going a long way, he said, well, I'm going just so far. 
And then he said, I'd try to get the nerve up to talk to this individual. They were in my car. They were a captive audience. And I'd talk to them and tell them how I got saved. And he said, if I got to the end of the, where I was going to drop them off, and if I didn't have the nerve to talk to him, he was none the wiser. But he said, I began to get past being afraid of talking to people by picking up hitchhikers. And maybe one other tremendous area is we have total lack of contact with people. We can live in an apartment building and the people in the next apartment, we can hear them rattling around over there or talking and we don't even know them. And so there's a tremendous um, lack of contact in the world today with people and we need to try to be in touch with people. When we finally meet somebody that we uh, get our eye on, we can, we can uh, say like Jesus said to that woman at the well, give me to drink. Now I said Jesus was weary and hungry and thirsty. I don't know if he was thirsty or not, but he said give me to drink. I don't even know if he got his drink because it got into a conversation. But, give me to drink. It's kind of a, a neutral ground, like we might say, ah, nice day today. Yeah. And, uh, how are you doing today? There are questions of that asking people. And so when I get beside a person at a table, I'm sure I do the same as you would, I ask the person, and I used to tell our girls, they'd be, they'd be going with a bunch of young people, and they'd be uptight, what, what am I, what am I going to say? I said, don't worry about saying anything. Just ask them questions. What they do, go to school, where they live. And they, people love to talk about themselves. And so the girls would come home and say, you know, Dad, it works. Just ask them and they'll talk and talk. I didn't have to say anything. And so it does work. And you can sit next to that person and ask them questions about themselves, about their family, their life, their work, their vacation, where they go. And then for sh almost every time, the person will ask about you. And I think this is a crucial moment when they ask, oh, what do you do? And so don't tell them that I'm a truck driver or I'm a doctor or I'm a lawyer or I'm a computer geek or whatever I am. <laughs> tell them that, you know, to put bread on my table, I'm a truck driver or I do whatever I I do, but, my, you know, really my work is, I just love talking about, about, you can even say about God or about the Creator, and then bring in some things that you can learn, like I just try and learn about birds, and I kind of like reading about birds, and I read about the Arctic plower, been reading about that later. Lately, it nests up in the uh, Arctic uh, in the wintertime, in our Canadian winter, and it, it nests up there, if you can believe it, at that time of year. And in the spring, it hatches its eggs. And then it flies all the way to the Antarctic, the Arctic plower. And it crosses over 6,000 miles of water without so much as setting its foot on the ground. And people kind of like to hear about that and talk about something. And then you bring around God, the creator. And so, I don't know, I read about stuff like that and then I talk to the guy that I'm sitting with and, and they find it interesting. And so you're talking about God as the creator without being too direct right away. But trying to get across that I love talking about the creator and that's my work. And yeah, I drive a truck to put bread on the table and buy food for my family and, and so on. And I think on Mars Hill is what uh, was taking place there. And also, when we're talking to the people, be casual and not mind to, uh, to talk about everything and anything. You don't have to go into a, a preacher mode. But it's always the trouble, I find, of trying to change the conversation from the physical to the spiritual. And our Lord said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that you're speaking with, you would have asked and he would have given you that living water. What is Jesus doing? I think he is bringing before that woman the wonders of the Lord. And you and I, in speaking about creation or the universe 
or the body or something we've learned about the body or the whatever we're talking about as God the creator, then, then we can use that as the, what do you say, the, the avenue to put out bait to get the people to bite. And then turning it from the physical to the spiritual, and I use creation. Or the, I guess you could call it the creator. And I use that all the time, even door to door, to try and get it on a, what do you say, on a casual thing. And then if I could make some suggestions as to uh, what to say. I personally do not ask a person, are you saved? Because they say, hmm. They think in their mind, yeah, hmm. Well, I got saved from that drowning that time, so yeah, I'm saved. And how did you get saved? And then they tell you about this drowning. Then you spend the next five minutes trying to knock them off the pedestal they just <laughs> climbed on. And so instead um, of that, I don't ask, are you a Christian? I might say to them, if I've got a brief time, I might say to them, what do you think of the Lord Jesus? Invariably, they will try to tell you what they think of the Lord Jesus. He was a good man. He was this and that. Inside of 25 seconds, they've run out of steam and they've got nothing more to say. Then they've kind of left the door open for you to take 30 seconds and tell them what you think of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if I could say this, I encourage people, and it's only what I'm encouraging people, use his full name often, Lord Jesus Christ. People hear his name taken in vain all the time. And I think by using his full name, we are exalting him unconsciously in their mind. We are exalting our Lord Jesus Christ and my Lord Jesus Christ and speaking of him in that way and asking, what do you think of the Lord Jesus? One day I took my old Hyundai car, which I'm thankful I don't have anymore. And if you're looking to buy a car, maybe the new Hyundais are all right, but don't buy an old one. And so the thing wasn't working again, and I took it down to the gas station, and the mechanic is standing there with the hood open, and he's got a wrench in his hand, and it was a hot day. And I thought, I'll just say to this man, what do you think about the Lord Jesus? And I asked him, what do you think about the Lord Jesus Christ? I can tell you, I wish it happened lots of times, but it doesn't. That fella carefully set his wrench down on top of the rad, he put his hand up on the hood, held onto the hood, put his other hand on his waist, and he says, ha, he's altogether lovely. In fact, he says he's the fairest of 10,000. There's none like him. And he says, I didn't always think that. But he said, uh, whether it was 10 or 12 years ago, he came to put his trust in Christ as Savior. And so people, you, you sort out the Christians immediately from the unsaved. But if I've got time with people, if you're flying in an airplane and you're sitting by somebody next to you, then you've got a little more time to talk. Or if you're in a situation where you've got more time, I have a six-question approach that I take and ask people. And you can maybe think it's a dumb approach, but I find it works really, really well. And... Uh, I say to them, <clears throat> do you have any spiritual belief? Now, sometimes people won't know what you mean by a spiritual belief. Most of the time they do. But even if they're thinking of uh, evil spirits or whatever, it doesn't matter. I just ask them, do you have any spiritual beliefs? If they say no, which happens once in a while, then I say nothing. And almost always, I don't know if I've ever had it not happen, they'll come back to you and say, why did you ask me if I had any spiritual beliefs? That's what I wanted them to ask. Then I say to them, say to them, like, do you believe the Bible? And if they say no, I don't ask anymore. But they usually don't say that, but sometimes they do. I don't, I leave it. And almost always they'll come back and say, 
why did you ask if I believe the Bible? Then I can ask him, do you believe in heaven and hell? Yeah, yeah, I believe in heaven and hell. Then I say, well, where do you think you would be if you were to die today? And God forbid, but if you did, where, where, would, you, where would you be? And uh, they'll usually say, well, they'll always say, well, I think I'll be in heaven. Then I say to them, um, what makes you think that you would be in heaven if you would die today? Like, why do you, why do you, you think that? And they'll say, well, I've never done anybody any harm, which may be basically means they've never killed anybody. And, yeah. Then I say to them, if you were wrong, would you want to know? And if you can ask those people that question, if you were wrong, would you want to know? And probably a third of the people will say, no, I wouldn't want to know if I'm wrong. And I say nothing to them. And almost always they come back and say, why did you ask if I was wrong, would I want to know? And I can tell them. But if they say, yes, if I was wrong, I would want to know. And then kindly as possible and as graciously as possible, tell them in a short 60 seconds about salvation. Maybe how you were saved yourself. But it's got to be brief and all the time you're reading them and you're determining if they want you to continue, if they want you to shut up and drop dead. And oftentimes they don't mind getting into a conversation because you've asked them, they've opened the door for you and so you can take and, and uh, walk through the door as it were. And for myself, I find it has worked very, very well. And I would use it when I come to people at the door or anywhere uh, that I'm talking to people. Um, when I, these, all these thoughts weren't mine when I, they were first brought to before me. I had a neighbor and he was a hard guy to talk to. He just was the kind of guy that made you feel uncomfortable. And so I went over to his house and one day he's sitting out in the front porch and I sat down on the porch with him because we do have a summer in Canada for a short time when you can sit down in the sun and uh, sat down with him and I thought, I'm going to go this route. And I asked him, do you have any spiritual beliefs? Yeah, yeah, I do. And do you have any, do you believe the Bible? Yeah, I do. And... Uh, do you believe in heaven and hell? We had a great conversation with a guy that I had found so difficult to approach before I was able to approach it with that man then. So that is only some suggestions, by the way, of uh, approaching the people. How do I overcome problems? One of them is racial problems. Um... Jesus was faced with that, with this woman. She was a Samaritan, and he was a Jew. And the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. And it was a pretty big wall between the two of them, no dealings, no going back and forth. And Jesus is going to talk to that woman. So how does he go about it? Well, you and I face racial problems as well. My wife and I spend several months a year up in the Arctic and in Northwest Territories, especially in the winter. And up there, there's a lot of First Nation people. They like being called in Canada. They're the natives or the Indians, commonly called, but they don't like that term, so we call them First Nation, or they don't mind native people. They look at what we're coming with to them as the white man's religion. And so, when we go to their home, there's problems to, to overcome. Even the disciples were surprised to see Jesus talking to this woman. That's how pathetic those disciples were, that they're surprised to see him talking. And, and so, we'll face Muslims, and they've got their issues. And with a Muslim, I don't know how you approach them, but when I meet them, they have got their prophet Muhammad, and so I say to them, well, um, 
what about Jesus? Oh, he was a good prophet. Was he? Like, was he really good? Yeah, yeah. He was, he was the, amongst the best prophet. Oh, um, there's a prophet like Muhammad. Was he an honest man? He was a crook, I understand. And a <laughs> deceitful man. But, oh, yes, he was trustworthy, honest. Does a prophet have to be honest and trustworthy? Yes, they can't be a prophet with it. All the Muslims that I have met will tell you that. Okay, well, Jesus said that he was God. Was he telling the truth? Then they're in a quandary because they just finished saying a prophet has to be honest and uh, Jesus is the best prophet. And I've had some very good talks with them, taking them on that basis rather than to try and convince them that Jesus is who he said he is. And so, um, at least that's the route I have approached with the people. And racial problems are always a difficulty to get past barriers that have been set up. And how do we get past those? I suggest one of the great ways is always use the terminology our, we, my, when we're talking about sin, it's not your sin. It's not your sin. Us, our sin. We are all the same. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. Where everybody is the same. And so using the term, the term our. And then there's the analytical reasons, if I could call it that. The woman says, well, you've got nothing to draw water with and you say that you can give me this living water. How are you going to get this living water? You don't even have a bucket to draw water with. And so people today, they give us analytical reasons. They'll say, well, if there is a God, why is it that all these people are dying with cancer and other diseases? Do you have an answer for that? I don't. But I do say to them, well, I don't know. I don't have an answer for all kinds of stuff. But I do know this, that when the one, the great physician Jesus came into the world, he went about healing those who were oppressed of the devil and all that were ill and sick with diseases, and they crucified him. They got rid of him. So they didn't, they didn't want him. I also say that, uh, you know, um, every year in North America, there's 1.5 million abortions take place. Is it possible that the cure for cancer was in one of those people that we got rid of? Because uh, these gifts are in individuals and we've got rid of millions in the last years. Is it possible? So at least you can uh, reason with them a little bit. At least I try and not put them down, try and reason with them. And uh, why do thousands die of starvation every day in the world? If there really is a God, and you can say, well, the one who came into the world and fed 5,000 people with, with a few loaves and fishes, they got rid of him. They, they crucified him. And, and then they'll say, well, if there is a God, why all these senseless murders take place? And they have to have guards and schools to protect the kids. And they don't know. And they've got metal detectors and everything else. And I just love what Ruth Graham said on TV recently, I didn't hear her on TV, but I've read it, she was asked the same question. And she said, well, well, uh, was it not a few years ago that God was told that he didn't want to be heard from in school and they didn't want kids to talk to him in school? And, you know, they weren't to pray and they weren't to read the Bible in school. Yes, the commentator said that is, is right. Well, she said, my God's a gentleman. And my God simply did what you asked him. And he left. So I thought it was a, at least a, uh, an answer of some sort. And then the great issue of how can it be possible that a person can know where they're going to be after they die? That's impossible. And that is so reasonable. But I suggest that we need to be constantly telling people that I know 
where I'm going to be after I die. And I think it is not a very good um, credit to Christians that I'm 65 years old. And in 65 years, only once on one occasion, when I was 18 years old, did a man ask me if I was a Christian. Only once. I think that's pretty sad, pretty pathetic. Where are all the Christians? Are we out there talking to people? And I was 18 years old. I was unloading 75-pound bags of potatoes off a truck at a grocery store. And Paul Fletcher, I didn't know him, was the fellow taking the potatoes and loading them on skids. And he stopped in the middle of his unloading these potatoes, and he looked at me in the truck, and he says, uh, what's your name? I told him. He said, I want to ask you a question. Are you saved? And I was. And Paul Fletcher, I don't know if you know Paul Fletcher. He has preached amongst the chapels in, in southwestern Ontario for many years. And uh, I think he's a joy, maybe running Joy Bible Camp now. I'm not just sure what he's doing. But uh, only person in all these years. I, I'm sure we've met Christians lots of times. Why aren't we talking to people? And why aren't we asking people? Are we, are we uh, what do you say, sitting silent? So... Um, then how can you show people that you know that you're going to heaven? Um, how can you prove that it's possible for a person to know? For those that were here in the gospel meeting last night, I tried to get across basically the avenue I take, but it's only effective if the people believe the Bible. If they don't believe the Bible, I don't know how you prove to the person that you know that you have eternal life, except by telling them that you know, and then even challenging them, if you, if, are you, you just figure I'm a big liar. And they sometimes will say, yeah, I think you're lying. Well, I can only tell them I know. But I, for people who acknowledge that they believe the Bible, and that's why I like the six-question approach, once they've admitted that they believe the Bible, and the fact is, I think all kinds of people in the back of their mind at least give acceptance to the Bible as being an effective book and a book of authority. Far more than what, if you just said you believe the Bible, they'll say no. But if you bring them around, they'll acknowledge, yes, I do believe the Bible. For those who say they believe the Bible, how can you can show them that you can know. And again, I take them back to creation. How do you know that God created the heaven and the earth? Were you there? No. The Bible tells us so. How do you know that there was a flood one day? Well, the Bible tells us. How do you know that one day Moses stood to the side of the Red Sea and stretched his rod over the Red Sea and the, the waters parted? That's a pretty tall story. And how they walked through the water. And I tell them, when I was a kid, I used to think, boy, if I was with the children of Israel, I'd, be the, I'd get right over the side where the water was piled up there, and I'd go by looking for fish, and I would grab fish out of that water. <laughs> but how, you know, to try and make the thing of interest to them, how do they know? Well, the Bible tells them so. Get them looking at the Bible, at the Word of God. They've got to get to the Bible. Then take them to, how do you know what God thinks about sin? How do you know that sin, what sin has done in the world? That the world is like a great big colossal cemetery roaming through the darkness of space. And some time ago, I did a little bit of study on how many people have lived and died on planet Earth. And some suggest as many as 100 billion people to 200 billion people. And if you spread all those people over the earth and give them each a burial, you wouldn't have room to give them each a grave. You'd have to bury some of them on top of each other. There's been... And how do you know what sin has done? If Adam had have looked ahead and saw the sorrow and the grief and the tragedy and the, and the tears and the anguish at cemeteries around the world over the years, surely he would have drawn back. What do you know what sin has done? And then 
how God saw the desperate condition of man and how he sent Jesus into the world. How do we know that? How do you know that there was a day when they took my Lord Jesus Christ and they laid him upon the cross and drove nails through his hands and feet and nailed him up there? How do we know that? And if you don't believe the Bible, you can use Josephus, a historian, who wasn't, I understand, even a Christian. And he even gives information on the crucifixion of Jesus. And so, how do we know that? Well, the Bible says so. How do we know that on the cross when Jesus died, that God took all my sins, that these were my sins, he laid them on his son and punished Jesus so he would never have to punish me. How do we know that? Well, the Bible says so. And just by simply using the word of God and then... If you can, get the person could say, could I show you a verse from the Bible? And always carry, I encourage people, always carry their New Testament. It's less scary than a Bible. And then open up your New Testament. Don't read the verse to them. Turn it around. Ask them to read it. Romans 6.23. John 3.16. A simple verse. And then ask them, what is that verse saying to you? And they'll look at it, and they will try to express what that verse is saying to them. And it's amazing how they will be able to tell you what that verse is saying to them, especially Romans 3 and 23. I like that. The end of verse 22, there's no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. They, they look at it. And they say, well, there's no difference. Doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, black and white, doesn't matter who you are, if what religion you are, all there's no difference. All have sinned and come short. And describe a ladder. Everybody's climbing up their little ladder, and God's looking down, and he sees us, and you might get away up your ladder, and I get a few steps up, and somebody else gets a few more rungs. But we all come short. And so you can use verses to show them. And personally, I think that a person who is saved by uh, learning what the Bible says gets a far better grounding in their Christian faith than a person who responds to an altar call or says the sinner's prayer or other avenues. And I don't mean that nobody gets saved at an altar call, and I don't mean that no one gets saved when they say the sinner's prayer. But we'll look at a verse, some verses here in a few minutes. But I suggest the grounding everyone needs is the word of the living God. Give out Gospel of John, all of Gospel of Mark, Gospel of Mark, I think, is more simple than the Gospel of John, and give it out to them. I uh, have a, a good friend, John McCandless, and he's a dear brother. He's a quiet brother. He's a brother that can talk to that chair and uh, have a conversation with it. He just has got a way with him that I envy. And we went into one day to a, a shop, and he's looking at this old engine he was looking to buy, an antique engine, and... Uh, and uh, within a matter of 30 seconds, he's talking to the man about the Lord. And I think, John, how do you do it? I wish I could do that. Anyway, John at work he gave, had been talking to a fellow that was a work fellow, and he one day brought a gospel of John and gave it to the fellow at work. Guy took it home, and he started reading it. Came back to work, was the next day or a few days later. He said, John, amazing little book. Like, John... When did you write that? <laughs> well, you know, that's how much people know out in the world. They don't even know that this is the word of God. And John, he thought that John had written the gospel of John. And so um, here we are trying to impress people by the, the living word of God. And um, the woman says... To Jesus, are you greater than our father Abraham who gave us the well? Are you greater? When you and I say that we know we are going to be in heaven 
people say, oh, you think you're better than me. And uh, that's a pretty common thing. And I suggest we can overcome that by using we and my sin and our sin and that you and I, we are the same. As well as being kind and gracious and uh, I think when we're preaching the word as well, we need to be saying, not you, 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 uh, not your, but our and my and us. Um, the other thing that the Lord Jesus did, he listened. And I'm working at it, and I've got a long way to go yet, but I really would like to, to listen. And my wife, I ask her, if you see that we're in a house and I'm not listening, you make sure you let me know. And she sometimes has let me know. Because I'm sitting there and I'm all geared up thinking, what am I going to say when he just shuts up and gets done what he's got to say? I said, you're not listening. Let him talk. Well, Jesus here with this woman, he could have taken over the conversation, but he let her talk. And he listened. And he would be listening attentively. And like our dear brother there in Lethbridge, he used to get down on his one knee and look eye to eye into the face of a child. And he listened to what that little child had to say and when it would be a young person he would stand with those new Christians and the Hutterites came off the colonies and they came into the fellowship and they knew very very little and I can still see dear brother Harold he was about six feet four inches tall he was taller than everybody and he'd be standing there with his head down looking at the floor and looking at the person looking at the floor and those dear Christians loved Harold and they had an appreciation for Harold. And it's not because Harold had all the answers, but Harold listened. If we will listen to people, people will respond. And then the woman brought up the big issue that people bring up today. She said, our fathers worshipped in this mountain. You say in Jerusalem is where people ought to worship. What's the problem? Different of religion. In this mountain, the Samaritans, over there, is the Jews. And with people, uh, they'll constantly bring up that issue. And I'm sure you maybe do the same as I do. And if you have better suggestions or other suggestions, I'd love to hear it. I usually say to the people, well, you know, what do you think? When we die, we come to heaven's door. They figure the line is up outside the door and they'll say, well, uh, what are you, Pentecostal? Are you a Roman Catholic? Are you a Muslim? Are you a... What are you, a Methodist? Are, are you a Baptist? Uh, are you United Church? What are you? No, they said, no, not, 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 not likely. What's the issue going to be? Well, it's all about the man that's on the inside the door. And his name is Jesus. And so trying to get them past the difference of religion. And I think it helps when you are showing them the Bible and the Word of God. And the question what do you think of the Lord Jesus Christ is a tremendous question to get them asked and get them talking until finally, when are you going to bring up the subject of sin? Because a person will not get saved before they face this great issue, this great subject of sin. They've got to face it. But if we bring it up too soon, I personally think we'll lose people. Where we live in La Crete, there's a, a little Mennonite group, and they're called the Charity Group, Charity Mennonites. They've got a lot of truth, and they've got a lot of zeal. And there's, in their little church, there's only about, they're about the size of us. There's about eight or ten families, but they're in your face. And it's always held damnation and judgment. They live by the law. They've got rules coming out your ears. You've got to use the King James Version and you've got to dress in black clothes and a woman has to have a double covering and she's got to have a head covering 24-7 and all kinds of rules that you wouldn't believe. But they're in your face down there at, 
everywhere, you'll, not everywhere, but often you will find them. And it's always, you're going to hell, you know. And people hate them in town. And then we get kind of painted with the same brush because they look at us and they sometimes think that we're associated with, with them because if I meet them, I'm going to be friendly to them and, and uh, sometimes have a coffee with them, but it doesn't help in a small town where they see me visiting with this guy and then they think we're both the same and so it kind of creates problems. But what I'm trying to get across is that there comes a moment when you have to bring up the subject of sin. When? And Jesus brought up the subject of sin when she wanted, give me this water that I don't have to come hither to draw water at this well. Then he says, um, bring your husband. And he knows that she has got a problem when it comes to her husband. It's a sensitive subject to speak about. But somehow we need to show them that sin has separated between man and God, or between people and God. And invariably, I take them back to even to the Garden of Eden, because almost everybody that you meet, even Muslims, seem to know the story of Adam and Eve. And I take them back, how many sins did Adam and Eve commit to get put out God's presence or to get kicked out or whatever and they all say well it was one sin well it may have been two whether it was a sin of unbelief and then there was a factual sin of taking the the fruit and they will say well yeah they ate the apple and you mean to tell me one little sin boy it's not a very big sin yeah and everybody will reason wow and so I say, well, you know, I've got a million sins. I don't know how many sins I've got. I can't even add them all up. I've told so many lies and I've misrepresented and I've done all this sin. And, and uh, how can I get in? How can you get back into this paradise? And they will begin to reason with you about, and I think it's reasoning about, Righteousness, sin and righteousness and judgment to come. To get them on a reasoning basis where they are included in the conversation that is not all one-sided. It doesn't always work. Sometimes it ends up being one-sided. But I try and get people around to the place where you can say, look, if it was possible to get every single sin removed, do you think then that we would be fit for God's presence to get into heaven. And invariably, they will say yes. And I think we need to notice that Jesus did not embarrass her. And so when we meet today, I find amongst Christians, there's a tremendous um, animosity almost amongst Christians, or maybe it's because where I'm working has been in Mennonites and Hutterites and a lot of Christian Dutch Reformed, and they're quite a legalistic people, and they look down their nose tremendously at homosexuals. And so when they get saved, they carry that same thing, and we have spent a lot of time with people trying to get across to them that they are involved in sin, and they are no worse than you. Their God says there's no difference, and we need to love these people and show kindness to these people. Don't condemn. We're not there to embarrass. But for the grace of God, there go you and there go I. I am no different than them. The only reason I am what I am today is God put a fence around me over the years as I grew up. And uh, also, Jesus did not tell her to change her lifestyle. He didn't tell her, now you go home and get rid of that man that you're with. He's not your wife, your husband. You go home and get rid of him because uh, you're living in sin. He didn't tell her that. Do you know a lot of the people we meet today, they are in such bondage to drugs, drink, they can't quit. They need Christ. And they need the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit that's going to give them this power to, uh, be, to be delivered. But he didn't tell her to go home and change her, her lifestyle. He took her 
on what she knew. She knew that a little bit about the Messiah. Even though she's a Samaritan, she knew that the Jews were looking for a Messiah to come. And the people we meet today, they know a little bit about Jesus. They know a little bit about the Lord. And so we take them on the little bit that they understand and try and build on that. I will ask people sometimes, what, well, I quite often ask them, what do you know about Jesus? And listen. You're listening there to find out what they know. And almost everyone will acknowledge he was a good man. So build on that. Do you know that three men in the Bible who knew Jesus talked about it and said that he, one of them said he could not sin. The other said he knew no sin. And the other said that in him was no sin. So you build on what they have already acknowledged that they know. And Jesus built on what she knew. He said, I that speak unto thee am he. He revealed himself to her. And salvation is a revelation of God to man. You and I can tell people and tell people and tell people and tell people that Jesus died for them. And that's great to tell people that Jesus died for them. But salvation is when God tells them that Jesus died for them. It's not you telling them, it's God. And they need a revelation from God. I think one of the greatest pictures in the Old Testament is in Genesis 45. There is Joseph in the earlier chapters, 42, 43, 44. He's bringing his brother's sin before them, slowly bringing them to that place where they finally acknowledge, we are verily guilty of the blood of our brother. Didn't we hear him crying? And we wouldn't listen. We are guilty. And then he says, everybody out. And in chapter 45, it says, Jesus made, I'm sorry, Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And those brothers would look and say, what? I could have told you what color hair he had, what color his eyes were, the way he talked and smiled. Why didn't I recognize him? I don't know about you, but after I was saved, I thought to myself, why didn't I see that before? It's so simple. He, He died for me. I've been told that all my life. And suddenly I understood it. And here is salvation is a, a revelation from God. And so 